chapter 2. You know, for years I've been wanting to preach on Colossians. It was like, it was in the back of my mind, that's, that's what I want to preach on. And I have to tell you, it, 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 the more I'm dissecting and breaking it down and preaching through it, I love this book. I, I think as a pastor, as a preacher, it's one of the greatest books to preach through. In all my years of preaching, it, it's been probably my favorite. So, um, and, I, and I think the reason why is it's so Christ-centered. Every sermon exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't get away from that. The, and I think that's the theme. I think it's captured that in Christ is, is, is found all the knowledge and wisdom of God, the treasures of God's knowledge and wisdom. And so this, I, I think, really plumbing the depths here, understanding who Christ is in, in this Christmas season is important. Because this is what it's about. It's about Jesus. It's about Christ. I think we lose the meaning of Christmas and I find as the older I get, the less I'm interested in all of the things that, all of the fanfare that goes on around it because we've, it loses the meaning of who Jesus is and what it's really about, the incarnation of the Son of God. So let's uh, look to the book of Colossians. And we're in the second chapter. And our, our verses are only three verses today. Verses 8 through 10. However... So that we're in context, I'll begin reading in verse 6. We don't have light. Therefore, as you received Christ, the, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now our text for today, see to it, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, once again we come before the throne of grace. We ask, O Lord, that you pour out your Holy Spirit in abundance. Fill us, fill our hearts. May we be filled in Christ. May the fullness of you, O Lord, enlarge our hearts and open our minds that we would behold wondrous things from your word. Grant us grace that we may be illuminated by the Spirit to see that which you would have us to know today. Encourage our hearts. May we have a bigger vision for who Christ is in our lives. And we be warned of the very dangers that are brought here in this text. I ask for your overshadowing presence. Holy Spirit, anoint my mind, my lips, and my heart. Bring forth thy word. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we have grown quite smart as a human race. When you think about the technological advancements we have made in the last 50 years, it's incredible. I mean, just to give you an idea, 50 years ago, 1960s, late 60s, mid 60s, you know, we're talking about a time when, you know, television was this big box in the middle of your living room with a very small screen. It was 
I believe, still black and white at that point. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. I, I wasn't born until 76. Um, you know, it was a big deal that man landed on the moon. Uh, telephones were still rotary. I grew up having a rotary telephone in my house. Um, I remember when cable came out, Cablevision, back in 19, 1980s. It was this box the size of this iPad with a long wire across the living room that went to the TV. Um, but when you think about where we were 50 years ago, where we are today, about, about a month ago, my daughter Rachel's in our back porch. says, Dad, look at this. And we saw a train of maybe 20 stars going across the sky. And I panicked. I thought, oh, my goodness, what in the world is that? Uh, it, 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 and my neighbors came out. Everybody was freaking out. We all were wondering, what is this? It finds out it's the Starlink satellite system, thanks to Jivin, who um, updated me right away on Facebook. It was the Starlink satellite system um, by Elon Musk, which traverses the world, granting internet access to everybody. Elon Musk, one of the greatest visionaries of our time, although he's a little wacky at times, um, has done great things. He's built the Tesla car. He's got all kinds of inventions. He's the, he is the modern Tesla of today. Um, and, but, but look at what's happened in the last 50 years. Look what's happened in the last 100 years. We've advanced more technologically than we did in 10,000 years. Look at medical science, how it's advanced. The human intellect and knowledge has grown by leaps and bounds. If you lived in the 19th century, the, the locomotive was a big deal. The telegraph was a big deal. The fact that you could you know, do Morse code and send a message from New York to California was a huge jump in technology. We have iPhones today. We have many computers, supercomputers. This would be considered a supercomputer in 1965 in the palm of our hands. Who could have imagined that? Paul could really relate to this. As he often says, he comes from the horse and buggy days of Lancaster. And yet, while we have made such great advancements, there is a, there is a drawback to it. There's a downside to all this. We've grown with much knowledge. I mean, in Western society, majority of people get a higher education in university today. Intellectually, we're very smart. And yet, the smarter we get, the more godless we become. With all this advancement in technology, with all of this intellectual creativity, with all this advancement in knowledge, and the further we've gotten from God more than ever before. It's an interesting thing because Brother Eric was talking about the, the image of God, right? God created us in his image and that creativity and all of that intellectual design is reflected in us. And yet, the more we advance, the further from God we get. Why is that? Why is it that today... Smart people think that to believe in God is foolishness. Why is it that the most intellectual and the most uh, advanced society looks at Christianity, looks at the gospel, looks at the Bible as a myth and a fairy tale that only, you know, backwoods rubes would believe in? Why are we scorned? Why are we mocked? Because at the core of this advance of knowledge and technology 
is human pride. You see, from the very beginning in the garden, man sought to usurp God's authority. Remember the temptation of the devil. In the day you eat of the fruit, you shall be like God, discerning good from evil. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's this knowledge that man pursues because knowledge is power. And it's not just knowledge, but knowledge of good and evil, the right to determine or the the efficiency to determine what is right and wrong for ourselves. We've become our own gods. You see, that's what mankind is all about. The original sin has so tainted us that our goal is to usurp God's authority. It's to put ourselves in the place of God. It's to dethrone God and put ourselves there. We saw that in the Tower of Babel. Man sought to elevate himself to the heavens, that he would be like God. And today is no different. The more intellectual we become, the more less religious, the less and less dependent we've become. America is by and large growing to become a non-religious or atheistic country like Europe. And we see this usurpation of God in the kind of way technology is going. Genetic manipulation. Pretty soon you can go to a genetic doctor and, and, and kind of handcraft your baby. Well, I want a baby with brown hair and I want a baby that's six foot tall. And, and you can go to a doctor. They want, they're developing the system where you can go and create your own baby. So it'll have no, no genetic defects. You can pick the perfect baby, do it all in a test tube. We see this already where people are, are doing this. And, 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 and furthermore, we see this uh, gender reassignment uh, surgery and all the uh, gender dysfunction today. Well, I, I'm not a man, I'm a woman, and I'm not a woman, I'm a man. Well, that's usurping God's authority. It's putting ourselves in the place of God. What's behind all this? And I think the worst of it is something I've read about. I don't know if it'll ever happen before Christ comes back. Transcendence. Anybody know what transcendence is? Anybody? Jivin knows. Jivin's Jivin, the professor here. I'm telling you, Jivin is, don't, don't sleep on him. He's really on top of things. Transcendence is this idea where hum, the human brain can be uploaded to a computer that human experience and technology will become one. This will no longer be something you put in your pocket, but you will become transcendent. You will exist with the computer. It's a freaky thing, but people and scientists are aiming towards that. Artificial intelligence. I pray the Lord comes back before any of that happens. I believe he will. There's no way I'm uploading my brain to a computer ever. I don't want to live on Mars. I'm quite content right here on earth. God can only let the human race go so far. What undergirds all this is your worldview, how you see life. A worldview is simply defined as this, a comprehensive conception of philosophy of the universe and of humanity's relation to it. It's a simple definition of worldview, and your worldview is shaped by your philosophies. Your philosophy is basically a system of thoughts and ideas put together to interpret reality, 
to understand what's right and wrong, what's good and evil, and how, what's the purpose and meaning in life and what we're here for. And over the course of history, there are many philosophies and worldviews that have developed that mankind grasps onto without God in the picture. These are philosophies we learn in many different ways and shape our psyche and mold our existence. We are essentially an amalgam of several different philosophies that create a worldview. There's philosophies you learn in school. There's philosophies that are cultural and ethnic philosophies. If you're from a different culture or a specific culture or ethnic group, you have a certain philosophy and worldview on life based on that experience. You have familial philosophies. Your family may have a very strong philosophy and outlook and worldview on life. And you're raised in that home, that's going to shape the way you look at things. Contextual philosophies, the way you, where you live. If you live in New York and you live in Alabama, there's two different worldviews based on the states you live in. That's contextual. People in France think very differently than people in India think. People in China think very differently than people in Russia think. There's a contextual philosophy that shapes our worldview. And all of this makes us who we are. The question then becomes... Do these philosophies dominate our thinking? Do they dominate how we view life? Or does the Bible dominate the way we think? How many of us submit our worldviews to Christ and let him flow through us and dominate the way we think? Well, today we see a contrast essentially between worldly philosophies, worldly views, and Christ. It's that simple. There's the worldly philosophies that are empty, they're deceitful, they're hollow. They're characterized by human tradition and by elemental spirits. And then there's Christ who is the fullness of God. Empty versus full. We're filled in him. And this contrast basically shows us there are two paths of life. There are two ways to look at life. There are two ways that we can live. And these philosophies are very compelling. These philosophies are very seductive, which is why Paul writes to the Colossian church, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive. That word see to it means look out, be on the watch for, be careful. It's a warning of a potential hazard. Now remember, this was a church that was well-grounded, well-rooted in the truth of the gospel. Paul had nothing bad to say about this church. They're a mature church. They're a spiritual-filled church. They're a church that has understanding and knowledge and wisdom, but therefore that doesn't mean they're clear and out of the woods. There's still danger. And he's warning them to be careful Now, obviously, Epaphras, who's the pastor, had told Paul what was going on. There is an infiltration. There are those within the church peddling different philosophies. I can, I tell you, there's volumes of books that have been written on trying to discern what was the Colossian heresy. We don't know. Was it Judaizing? Was it Gnosticism? Was it a combination of Judaism and Gnosticism? There's a lot of different opinions out there. Paul doesn't specify. In fact, the word here, philosophy, he says, see that no one takes you captive by philosophy, is actually a mistranslation. There's an article there. It's the philosophy. 
And that's all he refers to it as, the philosophy. There is a philosophy in Colossae that is influencing, it's infecting, and potentially could bring harm to the church. And he's warning them, don't be taken captive. That word captive is a very strong word. It's actually the word that's used for taking plunder and booty when you go to war with someone. It's when a foreign enemy conquers a nation and they take people as, pl- as slaves, as plunder and booty, and they take them captive and they lead them back to the nation uh, uh, that is a foreign nation that's alien to them, like when Israel was taken to Babylon. And that's exactly what false doctrine, that's exactly what worldly philosophy does. It takes people captive. It makes them slaves. And Paul's warning, don't be taken captive. Don't be fooled. Watch out. Be careful. You go up to Taconic where I live, you see signs. It's a galloping deer. Be careful. I almost hit one last two weeks ago. They exist. You have to be careful. And so what is this danger? It is a philosophy. Now, now philosophy can be used in a, in, a, in a variety of ways. The word philosophy simply means a love of wisdom, right? But in the ancient world, philosophy as a overall was, was a school of thought. It was There were philosophers. There were many philosophies that dominated the Greco-Roman world. Uh, some of the main schools of thoughts were um, obviously uh, Platonism, uh, which developed in Athens and and uh, Plato developed a school called the Academy. He was probably the most foremost of, of ancient philosophers. Um, he has influenced much of the pol- politics of the Roman Republic, and even our country, our nation, the United States of America, are, is a republic. We're a democratic republic, and it was it, uh, it's based on the, the philosophy of Plato and how a, a, a government should represent the people that it governs. This was something that he was more into uh, understanding how human beings interacted with, with civil authorities and developing uh, uh, you know, upon the Greco worldview of democracy and forming a republic. The Roman Republic was awesome until it turned into the Roman Empire. Stoicism. Uh, this was a goal of, uh, this was a philosophical school where people sought absolute tranquility. And it was obtained through um, an education, independence of one's needs. Um, people who were Stoics um, deprived themselves of food and of luxuries and, and pleasure, and so therefore uh, um, simply lived a, a, a life that, was, that didn't contain anything to interfere or distract. It was an inner peace, almost like a prequel to Buddhism. And Stoicism was very popular in those days too. On the flip side, that it was Epicureanism. This was a philosophy that simply sought to live for pleasure and just indulge in all that the world has to offer. In fact, there's a magazine that's called Epicurious. It's all about cooking and foods and you get some good recipes on there. These philosophies all kind of shaped the world that the Colossians lived in. But philosophy had also could be used to describe theological views. Josephus, who's the ancient Roman historian of the Jews, used the word philosophy to describe the parties of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So he would describe the philosophy of the Pharisees or the philosophy of the Sadducees or the philosophy of the Essenes. And so it was it would, the word could also be used to describe a theological school of thought. And so that 
tells us something that philosophy could take a broad range of influence and impact on Christianity. There are worldviews out there that clearly are not Epicurean or Stoic or Platonic, but we have modern philosophies, modern philosophers that have influenced and shaped the culture and the world we live in and have infiltrated the church. And then on the flip side of that, you have theological systems, which are also philosophies that have infiltrated the church. And what they do is they take people captive. They take people captive. This is what Scripture warns us about, not to be taken captive. Now, let me be clear. Paul is not against philosophy in general. He's not an anti-intellect. Paul is very intellectual. But what he is against is the idea of these philosophies that are devoid of Christ. They are devoid of seeing Christ for who he is, influencing us more than Christ himself. There are two descriptive words Paul uses for this philosophy in Colossae. He calls it empty and deceitful. The word order there in the English translation, it says the philosophy and empty deceit. I think the TNIV gives it a better. Uh, the hollow, deceitful philosophy. With the article, the, the hollow, deceitful philosophy. It is hollow. It is, it is empty. It means that it's, it's meaningless. It's vain. There's nothing that can offer. It's fake. When something is fake, it's empty, right? You know, it's missing the substance, and it's deceitful. And that is that this philosophy is lying to people. It is making false promises. I think of um, Hebrews 3.13, where the writer of Hebrews warns us not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. We're warned against the deceitful pleasures of this world. Right? Because sin and the pleasures of this world make lies to us. They make promises to us. Oh, if you do this, you'll feel good. And then in the end, you feel horrible. That's the deceitfulness of sin. It promises one thing, but delivers another. Satan saying, the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God. It was a great big lie. It was a deception. It was a hoax. It was the greatest hoax of all history. Man plunged himself into ruin by believing the great lie. And that great lie was that you will be like God. You didn't become like God. Humankind was destroyed. And so this philosophy that's corrupting the Colossian church or has the potential to corrupt the Colossian church, it's vain, it's empty, it's meaningless in contrast to Christ who is the fullness of God. There are many philosophies like this even in our current day and age. You look at the last 250 years or so of history, we've seen Philosophy in itself as a general worldview changed quite a bit. The Enlightenment era, when this country was founded, it was a great shift, paradigmatic shift, right? In Europe, everything was a certain way for many years. Then the Reformation came, the Renaissance, there was some shifting, there was a, a movement back to the Word of God. But by the time you get to the Enlightenment era, the Founding Fathers, John Locke and Thomas Jefferson... The, the, the worldview of these men was much different. Rationalism was the dominating philosophy of the day. This idea, uh, it was called in the Enlightenment era, everything had to be uh, discovered through reason and science. And so things became very focused on the scientific investigation and developing a, a worldview where 
If it was reasonable, it was true. If it wasn't reasonable, it wasn't true. You ever hear of the Thomas Jefferson Bible, the Jeffersonian Bible? Thomas Jefferson wrote his own copy of the scriptures. And what he did was he eliminated anything that was unreasonable. So all the miracles of Christ, the resurrection, the virgin birth, you know, when Joshua was, uh, when the sun stood still, all of this, the parting of the Red Sea, ripped out of the pages of scripture because according to Jefferson, it was unreasonable. It wasn't logical. It wasn't rational. So therefore, it can't be real and it can't be true. You see, all of these worldviews ultimately attack the word of God. They attack Christ. Then we get into the late 19th, early 20th century, and we move away from the Enlightenment period, and, and it evolves into what we call the higher criticism. And this is where everything began to be questioned even further. Um, and we looked at his literary documents and broke them down and, and questioned the integrity of these documents and questioned the intentionality of the authors of these documents to question what is true and what is not. At this time, the Bible came under great attack, and it was assaulted because a lot of other views were developing by Friedrich Nietzsche and by Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin, in particular, had a terrible impact on the church during this period. The theory of macroevolution had challenged the long-held view of a, of a creation in seven days, or a six-day creation narrative. It had challenged the idea of a young earth. It had challenged the idea that we were created in the image of God. And so a lot of, a lot of scholars and theologians had jumped on the Darwin bandwagon. They compromised on the issue. And as a result, the church split. And the idea at this time was that, well, these things are just poetic. We have to read the Bible as a poem, and poems are metaphors. We can't take everything literally that the Scripture says. God didn't literally create the world in six days. It's a poem, and you could see the parallelism of the three days uh, uh, and, and three three days, and uh, you know, in both filling the. I, I can go through the whole schema there, but it's. I don't want to take time on that. The point here is that they moved away from the Bible. They moved away from the Word of God. And most mainline Protestant churches have grabbed onto this. And mainline Protestant churches, by and large, have fallen by the wayside. They've abandoned the Word of God. Why even go to church? Why even bother calling yourself a Christian and showing up on Sunday? That's why you go to some of these mainline Protestant churches and just want five people there on a Sunday morning. What do you believe in? Then I'd say in mid-20th century to now, post-modernity had a great impact. Post-modernity is the idea that really nothing has any meaning. Truth is relative. If you want to discern truth, it's up to you, the individual. What may be true to you may not be true to me. How often have you heard that? You've shared the gospel with someone, you've talked to them about salvation. What do they say? Oh, that's good for you. That's post-modernism. It's moral relativism. We all are the captains of our own ship, the captains of our own faith. I'll determine what's right and wrong. I'll determine what's good and evil. Well, that goes right back to Eden. Wasn't that the whole point? Eat of the fruit, and the day you eat of it, you'll be like God. You'll determine what's right and wrong and good and evil. None of this is new. There's nothing new under the sun. They're just different iterations and evolutions of rebellion against God. One of the big ones we're seeing today is cultural Marxism. Now, Karl Marx was a philosopher in the 18th or 19th century. 
19th century, I'm sorry. And Karl Marx looked at the world during the Industrial Revolution, which had, again, shifted, again, the way people lived. People left the farms and went to work in factories, and they were making low wages, and you know, people were profiteering on that. And, and so Marx looked at the world and said, really, it comes down to this, it's, it's really about class warfare. It's about the oppressor and the oppressed. It's about those with power and money and those who are poor. And the majority of people are poor, and there's a small percentage that have money. And, and really, the solution and the, the way we have to look at it is equality. We've got to level the playing field. We have to have everybody in power. And he had this idea of, a, of the communist utopia where everyone would be equal and, and that nobody would have more than the other. And it was, it was a worldview that at the time everybody laughed at and thought it was a joke. But wow, it's shaped the 20th and 21st century. I mean, we saw the extreme view of that, right, which was militaristic communism, the Soviet Union, Cambodia, uh, Cuba. It was deadly. Millions, more people died in the Soviet Union than, than Nazi Germany. Let me make that clear, because we always look to Nazi Germany and say, fascism, you know, and Hitler, and he was evil, and he was wicked. And everything he did there was horrendous. And, hit, and Ger Nazi Germany was, was an atrocity. But the Soviet Union was 10 times worse. I have a book at home, The Most Evil People in History, and most of them were communists. Pastor Paul went to Cambodia years ago and saw the pile of skulls that Pol Pot piled up of all the people he killed who wouldn't submit to the communist regime. These are worldly philosophies. But we see the subtle aspect of it now, cultural Marxism. And again, it seeks to set people against each other. You're either an oppressor or you're the oppressed. You're the, you're the, some, you're, you're the person who's weak and they're the strong and this class warfare, and it influences and infiltrates all parts of society. And a big aspect of that now is through critical race theory, intersectionality, and critical theory in general. And what does it do? It divides and it pits people, and it's infiltrating the church. All of these philosophies, one point or another, infiltrate the church, and they shape and change theology. Theology shifts and changes to accommodate the new worldviews and new philosophies, and this is precisely what Paul warns against, don't be taken captive. Don't be fooled. Don't be shook away. You know what all these views have in common? And I just gave kind of like the Reader's Digest version of a quick summary of worldview and philosophy in the last 150 years. Two things that they have in common, or three things. One, they're all according to human traditions. That's what the scripture says. Right? It says here, it says their philosophy and empty seat according to human traditions. These are man-made views. These are not views that are from the Bible. They're views that are human-made. They're humanly developed. They're people without God and without Christ and without hope looking at the world and trying to understand reality and formulate a worldview based on their personal experience. Personal experience can be very powerful, but that does not determine truth. What determines truth is the word of God. And so we can, who know God's word, who know the truth, can't be sucked into humanistic origins of philosophies. That's what these are. These are humanistic philosophies. They're all about people. They're all about humanity without God. All of these worldviews have one common. They see the world without God. They're atheistic. 
None of these worldviews that I mentioned believe in God. Maybe for the rationalists, they were deists, but as you move forward, we're getting closer and closer to atheism. Marx himself was an avowed atheist, and most cultural Marxists today are avowed atheists. None of them believe in God. Because it's a worldview that's devoid of God. We must find the solutions because we are the ones in charge of our fate. We're in control. We're the captain of the ship. That's humanism. And all these philosophies have in common that they're humanistic in origin. It's the exaltation of man above God. It goes back to the garden. Secondly, they're according to the elementary principles or to the elemental spirits, the word storikion in Greek. This phrase has been debated about its meaning, but most scholars agree that the core meaning of this phrase is talking about demonic spirits. What's influencing all of these worldviews, these philosophies? Yes, it's, it's humanly inspired and developed, but behind it there's a spiritual influence, and the spiritual influence is Satan himself. But look what it says here in Galatians 4, 8, 9. Paul uses a similar phrase. In warning the Galatians, is formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved. Very similar language. To those that were by nature not gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? These elemental spirits that are behind, and the word elemental we would translate as fundamental. The word can mean a variety of things. It can mean, it can mean an alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, or the, the numeric system, one, two, three, four, five. Or it could, it could mean the elemental spirits, earth, wind, fire. It, it could mean the hosts of heaven. But remember, we're talking about the context of, of a pagan world that deified the elements of creation, that deified the stars that worshipped the moon, that worshipped the stars. There was a god of the wind, and there was a god of the sun, and there was a, a god of, of fire, and there was a god of the sea. They, this was a pagan animistic society. They worshipped everything under heaven. That's why God says to Israel when they come in from Canaan, they come to Canaan from, uh, from Egypt, what does he warn them in Deuteronomy 4.19? He says, beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Be careful that you don't worship the moon and the stars. That's what the pagans do. Later in Deuteronomy 30, God says, what's behind all these false gods? Demons. Just as God's word is inspired by the Holy Spirit, the philosophies of this world are inspired by Satan. Any philosophy that's devoid of God, devoid of Christ, and that is focused on humanistic principles and humanistic ideas and, 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 and sees the world through a prism where God doesn't exist is satanic in origin. They may have some value in understanding some things, but ultimately they have no value for us. They're going to take us away from Christ. They're going to point us away from Christ. You know, as I gave that kind of history lesson, every one of these mainline philosophies I talked about destroyed the church. Wrecked people left and right. It's demonic. 
Amazing thing when we talk about all this worship of the stars. <laughs> right there on Hartsdale Road. Ast- astrologist, right? Big sign. Come get your tarot cards read. Let's search the stars. It's a resurgence. We go to Ocean City, you know, once a summer. As soon as you walk on the boardwalk, there's an astrologist. People waiting to have their palms read and to, to, to search, you know, the, the stars. People have not changed. People are still still have this idolatrous nature and you're looking for something other than God. The point here is, brothers and sisters, we need to look out for it, to be careful of it, to be mindful of it, not be tricked and hoodwinked into it. Why? Because on the opposite end of it, we have everything we need. We have Christ. And Christ is sufficient. He is enough Notice in verse 9, for in him, in him, right? Well, wait a minute, let me just back up to verse 8, right? According to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. None of these philosophies that we should be careful of have Christ involved in it. They're Christless. They're not according to Christ. And so therefore, we move into what the fullness is, empty philosophy. Now we see in 9, In him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's Christmas, it's the incarnation, God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus in his physical body, the whole fullness of deity dwelt. This goes right back to chapter 1. Paul's hymn of praise and doxology. When he goes into um, verse um, 15, 16, he says, he is the head of the body, the church, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead and from, and, and that in everything he might be preeminent for in him, verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In him, all the fullness, fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The answer to all of this, these philosophies, is a rich Christology. The more you study the person of Christ and know the person of Christ, In him is the fullness of God. You want to know the purpose for life? You want to know the meaning of life? You want to know what what are the answers are to life's most difficult questions? You want to know how to live a life that's right and and fruitful and, and satisfying? Seek Christ. That's the answer. It's that simple. Because in him, right, as he says earlier, going back to Colossians 2, Verse 3, for Christ in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything you need to know about life is hidden in Christ. The more you search Christ, the more you learn about God. The more you learn about Christ and God, the more you learn about your meaning and purpose in life and what God has for you to do. But more importantly, we learn the, the most critical thing, and that is the gospel. You see, man's greatest need is not food. Man's greatest need is not riches. Man's greatest need is not wealth. Man's greatest need is to have his and hers sins forgiven. I remember years ago in a barbershop, I had this argument. This guy was pontificating. Man's greatest need is to have a full belly. All wars are because people are hungry. And he's going on pontificating that if everyone just had full bellies, no one would go to war. All the geniuses you meet when you go to the barbershop. 
Man is not at war because their bellies are empty. They're at war with God. And so therefore they're at war with man. Apart from Christ, it tells us in Titus, two were at enmity with each other, filled with malice and hatred for one another. That's the human nature apart from Christ. There'll always be wars in this world. There will always be murder and violence and hatred and all kinds of abuse. Why? Because man is desperately wicked. And until Christ returns and sets it right, that will always be the case. There is no solution this side of the planet. We can seek legislatively to make things right, but you cannot change the heart of man. Only Christ could do that. And that brings us into the deeper part of this mystery. And that is the second part of the statement. Not only is in Christ the fullness of deity, but it says, and you have been filled in him, who was the head of all rule and authority. You've been filled in him. The NASV has a good translation. You are complete in him. You are complete in him. If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you have found union with Christ through faith and through his death and resurrection have been saved and have a saving knowledge of who he is. You don't need anything else. All the knowledge and wisdom you need is found in him. Stop looking for answers elsewhere. There are so many people running and looking for answers. They're looking for answers in Dr. Phil, or they're looking for answers in medicine, or they're looking for answers in drugs, or they're looking for answers in some self-help books, or maybe they're looking for help with some guru, some yoga guru. They don't have the answers. You're always going to be left empty. The political systems of this world don't have the answers. They're empty. They're deceitful. The only one who has the answer is Christ, and Christ alone I tell you, we, I think what we do sometimes is we put Christ on the shelf. We leave him in the church. And when we leave here, we look for answers everywhere else but in Christ. God, Augustine said, made us with a void. And we all have that void. And humanity seeks and craves to have that void filled. And so humanity seeks to fill that void with everything but God. But nothing will satisfy. Nothing will will make us content. You know why? Because it was made for Christ. Only Christ can fill that void. Only Christ can bring satisfaction. Man will spend his whole life pursuing the vain things of this life, thinking the more he has or the more he tries to fill it, he'll find completion Our completion is found in Christ and him alone because we were created to have a relationship with God and mankind fell from that relationship. We were designed in the image of God, created to have a relationship with God. That relationship is broken because of sin and until that relationship is fixed, until you're reconciled to God and restored to a right relationship with him and that could only be through Christ Jesus, which is why he's the answer. Because Christ is the one in whom fullness deity dwells. He came to this world. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He bore the wrath of God in our place. And he conquered death and he rose from the grave. 
And it is through Christ only that you can have a restored relationship with God. You cannot find it through Buddha. You cannot find it through uh, uh, Moses. You cannot find it through uh, Muhammad. You can't find it through any religion whatsoever, only through Christ. Until you realize that, and until that relationship is fixed, nothing else will matter. Philosophies try to answer the problems of why human beings are here. What's our meaning? What's our purpose? What's it all about? How do we fix the world? I tell you, Christ has all the answers. The question I have for you, is he enough for you? Is Christ enough? Is he sufficient? Let me end with reading from a passage. I know it went a little over today. It was a lot to talk about. In John chapter 6, I want to finish reading in verse 27. And this is after Christ multiplied the loaves and fish and fed 5,000 men, not including women and children. A stupendous miracle by all accounts. But the miracle is always meant to point to something important. It was a teaching behind the miracle. The Lord brings that out in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered him, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. It is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but the father, but my father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And he said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Bread from heaven. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's symbolic of who Jesus is. Christ is the one who brings true nourishment, true satisfaction, eternal life. The survival of the children of Israel was dependent on the manna. They would die otherwise. Without Christ, we would die in our sins and perish forever. But he gives us true bread his flesh, he died for us so that we who believe in him may have life and life abundant. We have everything we need in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Jesus is enough for us. And Lord, we pray now that as we celebrate the Lord's table, direct our hearts and attention to everything we heard as we eat and drink May we symbolically confess
Jesus, that you are enough. We renounce all the views and philosophies of this life that have shaped and molded us. Oh, Lord, renew our minds. Shift, change us, cleanse us, renew us. May we not be taken captive by these worldviews and philosophies, but be taken captive by you, Jesus. Oh, cleanse us. May we be conformed to your image. Not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds to be like you, Jesus. We ask in Christ's name, amen.